Well, good morning again. This morning we are continuing our sermon series entitled The Perfect Family. Now, I asked this question last week. I asked you, how many of you have the perfect family? All right, last week I got one person to raise their hand, and I'm not going to call Sonny out for doing that or nothing. Um, but after a week of reflection, how many of you would, can, can now say that you have the perfect marriage? Anybody? Perfect family? Do you know anybody that has the perfect family? Probably not, right? Probably not. You know, that being said, we, we all know that we don't have the perfect family. But here's what we do know, okay? I can attest to this. You can attest to this. Marriage is a gift from God. Now, marriage is not for everyone. Let me say that from the very beginning. Um, in a few weeks, we're going to look at the gospel and singleness together. Some people do not get married by choice. Others find themselves single again. Paul never married. For him, he said it was better, but he never, ever disapproved of another person getting married. For me, marriage has been a tremendous gift. Outside of my salvation, there is no greater gift that I've ever received than my wife. Um, she is um, by far the best thing that has happened to me. But here's the deal. We may have really good marriages, but none of our marriages are perfect. When you unite two sinners together, there is a good chance that things are not always going to function perfectly, right? Last week, we began this sermon series by looking at the gospel and the dysfunctional family. And when you bring two dysfunctional people together, there is a good chance that there's going to be some issues and some problems. And that leads us to our first point this morning. It is this, the call to love. The call to love. Reach back with me to that day when you and your spouse probably stood on a platform similar to this and you gazed into each other's beautiful eyes and you exchanged your wedding vows together. Remember those days? You exchanged those vows, and then you probably left out of that room. You went down and you ate some cake, and for you really bad Baptists in this room, you probably danced a time or two, and then you loaded up in your car, and off you went on your honeymoon. Then, after the honeymoon, you probably went to your very first home. It was probably um, not the nicest home that you lived in. It was probably small. It probably had a few problems. There may have been leaking appliance, or leaking sinks or leaking ceilings, probably some broken appliances. You drove cars that you just hoped would get you from point A to point B. And you think back to those days and you worked probably really hard, worked some long hours. Some of you may have worked and went to school, finishing up a degree or two. Um, those were some hard days, weren't they? But when you look back on those days, you know what you probably remember most of all is just the love that you had for your spouse. Man, those were some sweet days. Those are some good days. They may have been challenging, but that's okay because you had each other. And that's all that mattered. You know, um, several years ago, a newspaper ran an article called How Things Change. It was subtitled, A Husband's Sequence of Reaction to His Wife's Common Cold. 
The first year of marriage, he responds to his wife's sickness in this way. Sugar dumpling, I'm really worried about you. You've got a bad sniffle, and I don't want you to get strep. I've called the doctor, and she's on her way right now. The second year went kind of like this. Listen, darling, I don't like the sound of that cough. I think it's time that you go to the hospital. The third year, maybe you better lie down, honey. I'll bring you something to eat. Do we have any soup in the house? The fourth year, you respond, now look, dear, be sensible. After you fed the kids and washed the clothes and vacuumed the carpet, why don't you go sit down and rest for a little while? Fifth year rolls around. Why don't you take a couple of aspirin? Sixth year, I wish you gargle or something instead of sitting around and barking all day long. And then there's the seventh year. For Pete's sake, stop it or you're going to give me pneumonia. How many of you can relate to that? I can. You know, those first years, man, when my wife was sick, man, it really was trip to the ER. But now it's more like, hey, you're going to get me sick. Why don't you? Reaching back to the opening pages of Genesis, we see that marriage is indeed a gift. If there ever was a match made in heaven, we all know this, but we can certainly attest to the fact that it was that first marriage. Adam and Eve, when they came together, it truly was a match made in heaven. Think about it. There was no sin between them. They never argued. Eve didn't have to worry about Adam leaving his loincloth lying around. Okay, Because they walked naked and they were unashamed in the garden. They did not have financial problems to fight about. They did not have kids that divided them. They did not have to drive all around the Garden of Eden getting their kids um, to this extracurricular activity and this extracurricular activity and so on and so on. There were no worries and there were no problems. They truly experienced for a season within their marriage the perfect marriage. You know why that marriage worked? It's because that marriage was made up of three people. God was truly at the center of it. And it was only after Adam and Eve moved away from God and decided that they were going to function independently of God that problems began to rear their ugly head within their marriage. You know, I've been married for almost 22 years. It's hard to believe that. It's hard to believe that any woman has has put up with me for that long. But as my friend Chief likes to often refer, um, often says, you married up. And that is true. I did indeed marry up, as most of you men in this room married up. My wife makes me a better man makes me a better father, a better pastor, and a better minister. And I hope you can say that about your spouse. You know, when I officiate weddings, oftentimes I include 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in in that marriage ceremony. And I want us to look at that passage together. So turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we're going to look at that entire chapter together this morning. In my way of background, this church 
was not a church that had it all together. This was a church that had many problems. There were many internal struggles. There were many external influences that influenced the church. In fact, when you begin reading just in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, Paul said these words. He said, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Throughout this book, Paul is going to instruct this church time and time again to put the Lord first, to stop fighting internally, to stop worshiping idols, and to do away with sexual morality. And another thing that he's going to do with this church is he's going to call them to love. And when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, this chapter is often referred to as the love chapter. Read with me, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 3 together, and then we will just kind of break this passage up together. But beginning in verse 1, we read these words. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. In verse one, what Paul is saying here, he is saying that even if we master, if I master several languages, even if I can speak in the tongue of angels, but if I don't have love, then, then that all matters for naught. He makes a reference to, to um, being like a clanging cymbal or a gong. And the reason he did that is because oftentimes in, in this part of the world during this part of, 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 of human history, there would have been a symbol that was outside of a pagan temple. And what people would do before they would go into that pagan temple to worship those idols and those foreign gods is they would pick up a, a stick and they would hit that symbol and that symbol would radiate throughout that temple. And the reason they did that is because they were hoping that they would wake up those unknown sleeping gods. A person that was entering the temple, that is what they sought to do, is wake up those gods. And so Paul is saying, man, even if I um, clang on symbols, then that is nothing if I don't have love. He goes on in verse 2 and 3 and speaks hypothetically about if he possessed all knowledge and all power and supreme faith but did not have love, then he was um, a worthless man. You know, you may be the best businessman in this world. You may be the greatest nurse in this world, the greatest teacher in this world, the greatest leader in this world. You may be the greatest spouse in this world, the greatest parent in this world, the greatest orator preacher in this world, but if you don't have love, then, then, then according to Scripture, we're all worthless. If love is not present in our life, then we have clearly fallen short of God's intended purpose. You know, when I officiate a wedding, oftentimes I'll include this statement in it or this paragraph. I say to the bride and groom as they are standing here before this platform and before their guest, I'll say nothing is easier than saying words 
and nothing is harder than living them out day after day. What you promise today must be renewed and redecided tomorrow. At the end of this ceremony, legally, you will be husband and wife. But you must decide each day that stretches out before you that you want to be married. Real love is something beyond the warmth and glow, the excitement and the romance of being deeply in love. It is caring as much about the welfare and happiness of your marriage partner as your own. But real love is not total absorption in each other. It is looking outward in the same direction together. Translated, the honeymoon isn't going to last forever. There's going to be real life that is going to rear its ugly head at points in your life. And life is going to be hard. Your marriage is going to be hard. Work is going to be hard. When you begin to parent, it's going to be difficult days at times. Notice our second point is this, the way of love. The way of love. Notice what verses 4 through 7 say. Paul wrote these words. He said, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all all things. Within these three verses, Paul paints a picture for the Corinthians of what real love looks like. When you and I talk about love, we often talk about love in some kind of an abstract way, don't we? We say that I love baseball or I love football. I love my car. I love my job. I love this restaurant or this food. We speak of love like that. But what Paul is doing here is he is speaking of love as if he is holding up this precious gem. And he's saying that, that if you want to know what real love is, then you need to cherish love. Then he's holding up that precious gem, that precious thing called love. And he is saying that if you want to experience real love in your family, real love in your church, real love in our homes, then we must value love like we would value this precious gem. So as we walk through um, the, this next portion of our message, we're going to break each one of these love statements down that Paul made reference to. And as we do that, ask yourself, how am I doing loving within the context that Paul writes? How am I doing at loving within my marriage, loving within my parenting, loving within my grandparenting? Students, also ask yourself, how are you loving your parents? How are you loving your siblings? How are you loving those that you do life with at school and through co-ops or whatever else you might be involved in. Notice the first thing that Paul says. Paul says that love is patient. Okay, I'll tell you now, this is probably the one area that I struggle the most in. I am not the most patient person in this world. Just ask my kids, okay? My daughter's over here laughing right now because she knows that's true. Patience is, 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 is something that I know I have to work at. It's, it's necessary within relationships that we have with one another. The King James Version says that, that, that love is long-suffering. Love does not have a short fuse. 
Paul also says that love is kind. And there's a difference between kindness and patience. Patience deals more with a person's emotional state or demeanor. Kindness, though, it is an action that is done. How many of you have ever done a random act of kindness? Maybe you paid for the person's coffee behind you or the person's meal behind you as you drove through that drive through Maybe you have gone and volunteered at a homeless shelter. You may have um, been driving somewhere in Dallas or in the Metroplex and you notice a homeless person that needs money. And you may have given them um, a dollar or two or you may have even gone, and I've known people that have done this. They've gone through the drive through grabbed something to eat, and then they come back by and they give the person something to eat. Uh, It may be that you um, have volunteered at a school or your own kid's school, and that that is what kindness is. Kindness is an action that that we do. While attending a marriage conference with his wife on the topic of communication, a husband really blew it, and probably happens every day. But the instructor had just said, it is essential that husbands and wives know each other's likes and dislikes. And about that time, the speaker turns to this one man and asks, can you name your wife's favorite flower? And the man, he turns to his wife, and he kind of gets snuggly with her, and he looks at her, and he kind of says, it's Pillsbury, isn't it? This man may have blew it a little bit. Men, it's okay to buy your wife some flowers every once in a while. Not Pillsbury, but like roses or something. Brian Bill shared this illustration. He says, many of you have read the book by Gary Chapman called The Five Love Languages. The main thesis is that the best way to be kind to your spouse is by using the love language that he or she speaks. One of the concepts is that each spouse has an emotional love tank that needs to be filled by the other. The object of love is not getting something you want, but doing something for the well-being of the one that you love. And I think all of us can learn a thing or two there. We all need to love one another and serve one another and do acts of kindness for one another. Those aren't things that are just to be reserved outside of the home, but those are things that we are to do inside the home as well. Another thing that Paul says, Paul says, love does not envy. Love is not jealous. Healthy marriages celebrate each other's success. Love does not boast. Love does not say, look at me and look at what I have done. Kind of belittling the other person for the lack of contribution or perceived contribution that that they may have um, given within marriage. Galatians 6.14 says, But far be it for me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. If we're going to boast, let's boast in our relationship with the Lord, not in our accomplishments, not in the things that we've done. The last place that we are to boast is in our home. Because a lot of times when we boast about something, what are we doing? We're making somebody else feel inferior to us. Love is not arrogant. Or love is not proud. The best way to know the difference between boasting and arrogance is this. Boasting is grasping for praise. A person that is arrogant, what they do is they assert power in what they 
do. Love is not rude. The Greek word means that love does not behave in an ugly or indecent or obscene manner. You know, I have seen many a man and many a woman that has belittled one another within the church and outside of the church as well. Love is not rude. Love is not selfish. Love does not exemplify a me-first attitude. Kids, life is not always about you, okay? Men, life is not always about you. Women, we know life is always about you, isn't it? Life is not always about us, is it? Life is about us loving one another and being concerned about the welfare of one another and reaching out to one another in love. Love is not irritable. One English version translates this virtue in this way. Love is not touchy. Do you know touchy people? I'm a little touchy at times. Love isn't irritable. Love isn't touchy. Love is not resentful. Love keeps no record of wrong. This is an area that all of, all of us probably need to work on a little bit. You know, love does not keep a ledger of, of the good that someone has done and the bad that someone has done. A lot of times when people keep a ledger, what they do is they try to... to um, keep a scorecard in the sense that, well, here you've done this much loving and this much unloving, and so I'm going to respond because of this as opposed to because of this. Love is not resentful. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Love does not celebrate evil. Love does not celebrate sinfulness within the home or outside of the home. Notice what love does. Love always rejoices with the truth. Love rejoices with honesty. Love rejoices with us allowing God's word to be the foundation upon everything that we do. We build our marriages upon the foundation of the Lord. We build our relationships with one another upon the foundation of the word as opposed to, as, as in, in addition to our relationship with our children and children with parents. Everything that we do must be based and, and, and have as its foundation the truth found in God's word. Love always rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. The Greek word for bears all things means to cover something. And the picture here is that of a roof that, that provides protection for those that seek um, to cover. And all of us, we want to protect one another, don't we? All of us have homes, all of us have roofs, and that roof um, is a, a, a source of protection. Every single night when we go into our houses and we lock those doors, we know that we are in a safe place. At least we hope we're in a safe place. Probably today the home you live in is probably a little bit safer than that first home you lived in, right? But when we think about love bearing all things, it means that, that love provides a shelter, It's a safe haven. When you're around your family, that is the safe place. When you are around those that you do life with, that should be a safe place. 
Love also believes all things. Love always gives the other person the benefit of the doubt. And love comes to the defense of another person instead of just jumping to conclusions. Love always hopes. Love never gives up on people. It's easy sometimes to give up on people, isn't it? It's easy to write people off and say that you are just beyond hope. You are worthless. You have no purpose or future. Love doesn't do that, does it? Love never gives up on one's spouse, one's children, one's family, and one's close relationships that they have with their friends. Love endures all things. Love perseveres and holds fast. Love stands at ground and it fights until there is no fight left. Your marriage is worth fighting for. Your relationships with your children are worth fighting for. Your relationship with your friends, that is worth fighting for. Don't give up or give in. Notice our third point. It is this, the durability of love. In verse 8 we read, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but, the, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Love never ends. One day, everything around us is going to cease to be. But you know what's going to stand? It's going to be love. Lord Jesus is going to be standing. Our relationships that we have de- developed with other believers, those will be standing. First Peter 4.8 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Yeah, we're going to be wronged. Yeah, there's going to be some hurtful days within our marriages and within the relationships that we have with other people. But if we truly are loving, if we truly are individuals that embody love, then love is going to, is, is going to persevere. Love is going to win every time. You know, I, as I was trying to figure out a way to bring this message to a close, um, I wanted to provide just some, some tips to a healthy marriage. Some of these are a happy marriage. Some of these are things that my wife and I have put into practice over the years. And some of these are some, some tips that I've come across um, through just some research and study. But the one thing that I will say are, are several things. But the first thing it is this. Let me challenge you. Pray together with your spouse daily. Danny and I have been married for almost 22 years, and there have probably only been a handful of times when we have been under the same roof together that we did not pray together in the evening. Before we go to bed every night, we pray together. Let me challenge you to pray with your spouse on a nightly basis. 
I also challenge you to pray with your kids on a nightly basis. That's one of the things that we do with our kids every night as well. Before they go to bed, we'll pray with them. And then, you know, later on in the evening before we go to bed, we'll pray together. Pray together. Also, love each other passionately and effectively. You know, we get one chance at this thing called marriage. Love your spouse passionately and effectively. Serve each other. Don't seek to be served. We all want to be served. We kind of have that innate um, thing within us when we expect to be served by our spouses. Let's not do that. Man, Jesus modeled for us the way that we are to live our life, right? He said that he had come not to be served, but to serve. And if Jesus provided that example for us, don't you think we should provide that example also within our homes? So let's seek to serve each other. Let's compliment one another. Don't complain to one another, but compliment one another. Build each other up. When we build up our spouse, then, then guess what happens? Our, our marriage is a little bit happier, isn't it? When we belittle one another, guess what happens? There's probably some strife. There's some conflict. There's some fights and battles that we deal with. Compliment one another. Don't complain to each other. Do acts of kindness for one another. By your spouse, roses every once in a while, men, women, figure out what your husband's like. Do an act of kindness for them by providing that for them. I don't know what that is, but you do. Serve together. Man, there's nothing that I love to do more um, than serve with my wife, whether that's doing a local mission project or whether that's getting on an airplane and going and serving with her somewhere else around this world. Serve together. Because when we're serving, what are we doing? We are presenting the good news of salvation to those that we come in contact with. And is there any greater enjoyment that one can have than pro- pro- proclaiming the good news of salvation with those that, with our spouse and our family to those that need Jesus? Date your spouse. Date your spouse. Some of you in this room do a really good job of that probably. Man, you go on a date once a week, maybe every other week, maybe just because of life and kids and everything, you're only able to do that about once a month, but date your spouse, okay? The reason I say that is because you're not going to get to know your spouse if you're always around your children, are you? You know, think back to the date days that you courted your, your, your soon-to-be spouse. What did you do? You spent as much time alone with that person as you could. Find moments where you can date your wife. Well, you may say, well, my kids are gone. They, they're, they're off at school now. And so we have nothing but alone time, okay? Get out of your house, okay? Go to dinner. Go on a picnic. Go to the park. Do something where it's just you and them away from the distractions that may be in your home. Affirm one another. Build each other up. Don't tear each other down. Get away together. Go on a weekend retreat together. Maybe it's a week-long vacation together, if you're able to do that, apart from the kids. It's rewarding. 
It's a time where you can re-energize with your spouse and then come back home ready to do life with your family and those that you do life with outside of your home. And let me just say this. If your marriage needs strengthening, do not be afraid to ask for help. Okay? Do not be afraid to ask for help. Maybe it's asking for help um, of another couple. Maybe it's that you need to go to marriage counseling. Maybe you need to go on a, to a marriage conference. Maybe you need to come and talk to me or talk to Bill or something like that. Don't give up on your marriage. Don't just say, man, this is pointless and hopeless and I'm ready to move on. God isn't honored when we move on, is he? He brought us together, and we made a commitment the day that we married our spouse that nothing was going to come between us besides death itself. So if your marriage needs strengthening, do not be afraid to ask for help. And in conclusion this morning, remember it takes three to make any relationship work. Adam and Eve did not have marital problems until they moved away from God. And probably, if you look back to some of the the strife that you might have in your relationship with your spouse, it may be because God isn't in the center of your marriage. It may be that your relationship with your kids are, 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 are strained. Where is God in that relationship? I just, I, I just can't emphasize enough that the key to any marriage relationship is the presence of the Lord. This message is the gospel and marriage. If we want to have a strong marriage, then Jesus has to be present within that marriage. Now, understand still, okay, and I know this, all right? We are still two dreadful sinners that God has brought together. There are going to be problems. Okay, there are going to be some heartaches. There are going to be some struggles that we still experience even though we are both Christians, even though we place the Lord Jesus Christ in the middle of our relationship, there are still going to be some hard days. But any day is better when the Lord Jesus Christ is present, right? Any marriage is better when the Lord Jesus Christ is present. Any marriage is better when love is at the center of that relationship as opposed to on the back burner. You may be here this morning, and, and um, this whole thing about love is, is foreign to you. And it may be foreign to you because you've never experienced true love. And there is a true love that is out there, and that is a relationship with Jesus. In Romans 5, 8, The Bible says God demonstrated his love to us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's no greater love that has ever been demonstrated on this earth than the love that Jesus demonstrated whenever he went to the cross and died on that cross for our sins. If you're here this morning and you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to make the greatest decision that you could ever make. I'm going to be standing here at the front. And if there's a decision you need to make, you come. You may need to come um, and just pray. You may need to pray at, um, at, at your seat. Um, 
You, you may be here and you've been visiting this church for a while and the Lord is leading you and your family to make Friendship Baptist Church your church home and we'd love for you to do that. I don't know what decision you need to make, but I'm going to be standing here at the front. I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. And when I say amen, if there's a decision you need to make, I want to invite you to come. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you now, Lord Jesus, just admitting, Father, that, that um, I, I'm admitting, Father, that I don't always have things together. Father, I fail every single day. I fail my wife. I fail my kids. I fail this church. But I thank you that in the midst of my failure, you are right there to pick me up, to wipe me off, and to encourage me to press on. And Father, may all of us press on. May all of us press on within our marital relationships. May we love our spouse passionately and effectively on a daily basis. May we be quick to forgive. May we sometimes be slow to speak. Father, I pray now, Lord Jesus, that if there is a a marriage in this room that is struggling, Father, I pray that they will not keep that to themselves. But I pray that they will seek help, beginning with you and then seeking the help of others. Father, there may be someone here this morning that has yet to enter into a relationship with you. If they were to die today, they do not know where they would spend eternity. And Father, I pray this morning that they will make the greatest decision that they could ever make. And that is to confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. And Father, your scripture is clear that if we do that and if we repent of our sins and we make a commitment that we're going to follow you, that we shall be saved. There's someone here this morning that has yet to experience salvation. May today they come and experience salvation. Father, I just pray that you will move now during this time of invitation. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.